0: Good evening, Uh, I extend my welcome to you as well to church this evening. My name's Lachlan, if we haven't met yet. Uh, It's good to be back with you. I did miss you all last week. I was back at a church called Peninsula EV last Sunday, uh, church in Woiwoi on the central coast of New South Wales in Australia. Wonderful to see a bunch of old friends, including flatmates, see the way that they've continued to grow in Christ since two and a half years ago when I left the church there. Uh, Wonderful to meet lots of new babies as well. I don't know when the baby boom will hit us here, but about six uh, brand new babies under the age of three months there, so lovely to see God bringing new life into the world. Uh, Look, I get the privilege tonight of helping us feel the weight of what God has said to us in His Word there in 1 Corinthians, so let me pray that God would work that in us tonight as we sit under His Word. Father, please by Your Spirit this evening, help us to hear what You have to say to us. Please help us to centre our lives once more around Jesus. Whatever else it's been that we have been putting in the centre, take that away from us, whatever pain that might cause us, and help us tonight to refocus on Jesus, that all of our days from here on out might be lived for His glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a few weeks ago, I was with some of you uh, here at Auckland Uni. Uh, We were over in the quad... Inviting people to tell us what question they would ask Jesus if they had the opportunity. Across three days, we compiled all the different questions that they had and, you know, being a university, a few people had funny questions for Jesus. So the person who asked, uh, do you like potato sticks or celery sticks? I'm not even sure what a potato stick is. Um, Another question that I had no idea what it meant, but can you ask Jesus about Yeezy? I don't know what that means. Uh, Someone else wanted to know, can I have more shoes? Um, There were a couple of people who were just nice and asked Jesus, hey, how are you going today? Uh, But most people had genuine questions. Most people do have things that they're unsure about, things that they want to ask Jesus if He's really there. The second most common category of questions that people had was around the meaning and purpose of life. Why do we exist? Why are we here? Is there any meaning to life? It seems like people are becoming dissatisfied with atheism's lack of answer to this question. You know, the atheist, declaring confidently that there is no God, that there is no Creator, looks at human life and says, "Oops, that was an accident, didn't mean for that to happen. I mean, it's a happy accident, sure, it's turned out well for us, but it's still an accident. With no inherent purpose, Humanity is left with no inherent meaning. There are some atheists who happily embrace this existential angst and affirm depressingly that life is meaningless. There's a very short play produced by one such atheist, it goes for about 30 seconds. Uh, The stage curtains open onto a dark stage and you hear the sound of someone breathing in and the lights come on and there's just a pile of rubbish. It lasts for about 30 seconds, you hear an exhalation, breath going out and the lights go dark and the curtains close. This was the atheist statement on life. Life is a pile of rubbish that's here for a short time and then gone. That's depressing and it it doesn't feel right, does it? Life, we feel like we must have a purpose. Otherwise we get stuck moving through life from day to day. So we make up our own purpose. But again, that doesn't satisfy us for too long. It satisfies us for about as long uh, until something kind of rips away our ability to live for that purpose for most people around the place the purpose that we come up with is to be happy or to make other people happy and that lasts for a while until we realize that we don't actually know what happiness is we don't know how to get it for ourselves and we don't know how to give it to others so knowing the purpose of life is crucial if you have a clear idea of what you're meant to be doing with life it makes decisions easier it gives you motivation and clarity to go through each day It directs you and guides you until your dying breath. I've got good news for you this evening. Uh, The good news is that the God who created you, who created us, has told us why. Why He created us, what purpose He has for us. So, are you ready to hear tonight the point of your life? It was there in that part of God's Word that we had read. Make sure you've got it open, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Have a look at verse 31. Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything for... Pause there, for is a purpose word. Notice how much of your life is about to be given purpose. This is everything. What's the purpose of everything in your life? Do everything for God's glory. You and I were created to display God's glory. You and I were created so that we might display the glory of God. What does that mean? When you really get down to it, what is God's glory? I can think of only one area of life today where we tend to use this language of glory, and that's within sport. If someone goes for glory in a sporting match, you know, they're trying to be the solo person that wins the game for the team. They go for that miraculous dive to score the try, or they kick that goal from... 40 metres out or shoot the 40-foot jump shot to win the game. If they do achieve it, they get the glory, they get the honour, the praise, the fame, the renown. Those are all the kinds of words that describe glory. And so, when it comes to God, God's glory is everything about Him that means He deserves to be famous. God's glory is His greatness, everything about God that makes Him impressive to humanity everything that makes god worthy of praise. Now it doesn't take too long as you think about it to realize that since god is the one and only true god, then he alone deserves all glory. See, we saw 3 weeks ago when we first got into this section of 1 Corinthians that there is no god but one. Since chapter 8, verse 1, Paul's been dealing continuously with this question of idol sacrifices. Should we eat them or should we not? In chapter 8, he told us some basic truths that we should all know. Check it out from verse 4 of 1 Corinthians 8. About food, about eating food offered to idols then, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father. All things are from Him, and we exist for Him. And there's one Lord, Jesus Christ. All things are through Him, and we exist through Him. So you notice that the God who we know as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is the Creator and Sustainer of everything in the world. So He alone deserves the praise or the glory of for everything in the world. For anyone else to take credit for anything is to rob God of His glory. If you see anything else that's praiseworthy, its glory is contingent or derived from the One who created it, right? If I'm walking through the shops and I pass by the shoe store and I see that glamorous pair of new heels, or perhaps more likely the Air Jordans that have just come out, uh, I don't start praising the shoes, do I? You know, I might, I might start talking about how good the Air Jordans are and saying, man, you're such a great pair of shoes, but really I know that the one who deserves the credit is the person who's designed the shoes, the person who's made the shoes. The shoes themselves, they haven't done anything, they just created. And so in the same way, the heavens, filled with the innumerable stars that you can't stop to count, they declare not their own glory, but the glory of the God who made each and every one and who leads them out by name humanity, in the intricacy and the wonder with which we've been made, declares not our own glory as some happy accident, but the glory of the God who knit us together in our mother's womb. Now, alongside God's mighty power as Creator, God is also glorious when it comes to His character. So, track back with me to Exodus chapter 33. This was a passage we looked at uh, some six months ago here at church. And notice in verse 18, we've got Moses asking God, please let me see your glory. Now, underlying Moses' uh, question here is a recognition that God's personal presence, when God actually turns up on the scene, that itself is glorious. Whenever people in the Old Testament get to see some aspect of God, it's bright, they can't really look directly at it, uh, it's amazing. That's what, God, that's what Moses is asking for, Moses wants to see God. But rather than give Moses a visible show of His glory, God shows to Moses a different side of His glory, His character. See verse 19? I'll cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. I'll proclaim the name Yahweh before you. I'll be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. And then that's all just the lead-up to the actual event. When the event happens in 34 verse 6 hear how God describes himself there. Then the Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and rich in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving wrongdoing, rebellion and sin, but he will not leave the guilty unpunished bringing the consequences of the father's wrongdoing on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Here is God's glory, His goodness, His compassion, His love, His justice. Friends, there's so much that makes God worthy of praise. We could spend hours just tracing this theme throughout the pages of Scripture. That's how deep and constant a thread it is. God deserves to be famous that leaves you and I with only two things that we can do with our lives. At any given point in our life, any given day of our life, we can either glorify God or we can dishonor or cause slander for God. Those are the alternatives. Either we bring glory to God and magnify Him like a telescope magnifies a star, not making it look bigger than it actually is, but trying to help us grasp how big that star actually is. We can magnify God in that way or we can make God look small, insignificant, even bad. Those are the two options. And again, this plays itself out throughout the Scriptures in so many places, but we've only got time to see one. So, come to Ezekiel 36, have a look at verse 19 there. In context, historically, in this passage, God is punishing Israel because they'd fallen into idolatry. It started worshipping other gods and so God sent them away from the land of Israel into the land of Babylon. It's what we call the exile. But notice the impact that this exile has had, verse 19. I dispersed them among the nations, they were scattered amongst the countries. I judged them according to their conduct and actions. When they came to the nations where they went, they profaned my holy name because it was said about them, these are the people of Yahweh, yet they had to leave His land in exile. To profane God's name is to take away from His reputation, to give Him a bad reputation. See, the Gentiles were saying things like, boy, that that God of Israel, He must be pretty powerless. Look at His people. He can't even keep them in their own land. And so, God's saying here through Ezekiel, "Uh, you Israelites, you were bad publicity for me. You gave me bad press. In verse 21, God doesn't like that at all, Then I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel profaned among the nations where they went. God cares about His reputation. God longs to be as famous as He deserves to be, to be glorified as He ought to be. And the purpose of our lives is to be involved in that task. The purpose of your life as a human living on this earth is to display God's goodness and truth and beauty and wisdom and justice. To show by your obedience and trust in Him that He is a good and faithful God. So we come back to 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything for God's glory. Every action of your life, in every moment, every day, You can either act with an eye to making God famous or act in such a way that disregards His fame. We'll come back to that at the end tonight, but now that we've understood that verse 31 really is a vital summary of the whole of Christian ethics throughout the Bible, we need to see why Paul brings it up in this particular context in Corinthians. You might notice that the first verb in verse 31 Know what a verb is, right? I find more and more people have lost this basic verb is a doing word. Um, (laughs) Good. Uh, The first verb to eat, eating, and that's uh, noticeable because we're at the 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 end of a long section here that has run from chapter eight, verse one, and it goes all the way through to eleven, verse one. It's all concerning this issue of food sacrifice to idols. Should we eat it? Should we not? We've seen over the past three weeks three distinct steps in Paul's answer to this issue. Those sermons are all on our website. If you've missed any or all of them, get online and and have a listen. It's worth seeing the way that Paul has uh, interacted with this issue. I'll give you a quick run through of the three steps. First, in chapter eight, Paul established an overarching principle. The principle was we need to let love limit our freedom. We're free to eat in Christ, but out of love for others, We actually put a limit on our freedom. We curb our freedom rather than leading people into sin. And so in chapter 9, Paul moved on to give an example of how he had done that with his life. He wasn't just commanding this, he actually walked the talk. He showed how he gave up his right to be paid by the Corinthians because he didn't want to stop them from seeing the goodness of the message about Jesus. And then last week, in the first half of chapter 10, we saw that this is really a serious issue. We saw Israel's negative example, how they had fallen into idolatry and were punished by God. This isn't child's play, this is life and death stuff. And so we hit 10 verse 14, and the first word, therefore. When you see the word therefore in the Bible, what do you ask? Good, good to hear a few of you there. When you when you see a therefore, you ask, what's it there for? Therefore. Uh, Therefore is a linking word, it's a logical connecting word. Uh, it's a concluding word. So it's a marker here that, as we hit verse 14, Paul is kind of bringing to a summary close everything that he's been saying. And, and he highlights the conclusion here by addressing the Corinthians as "dear friends." Paul's not writing here out of indifference. Paul doesn't just want to be right and show the Corinthians that they're wrong. No, Paul's writing because he deeply loves the Corinthian church. He, he went along and evangelized them into existence. He went and told them about Jesus, that they might be saved. And so Paul gives us here an example of what it looks like to speak the truth in love. Uh, what's his concluding remark in verse 14? Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. As he wraps up this whole unit, we find out that the issue at stake for the Corinthians is not just eating some meat, but actually falling back into idolatry. See, there were some, when Paul had gone and told them about Jesus, who had turned away from idols to serve Jesus as God. But now they were returning to their idols and again getting involved in idol worship. So Paul says, flee, run away, put some distance between you and idolatry. Just like he said back in chapter 6, verse 12, about sexual immorality, this is not something to flirt with. This is a cliff edge to get the heck away from but why? What's the big problem with idolatry? Well, in short, participating in an idol sacrifice is saying that you need something other than God and that you need something other than what God is able to provide. Let's pick up Paul's argument in verse 15 to 22 and see how he brings that out. First of all, in verse 15, he clarifies that what he's about to say is easy to understand. I'm speaking as to wise people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Now, in case you're reading this and thinking, okay, I'm invited to now sit over Paul as an authority and decide whether I like what Paul's saying or not, that's not quite what he's saying. He's not putting us in authority over him. He's an apostle, given authority by the Lord Jesus to speak commands to us. Rather, he's just saying, look, you guys have got brains. What I'm about to say, it's simple, follow along with me verse 16, he introduces this comparison with the regular Christian meal which commemorated the Lord's Supper. At this time when Christians gathered, pretty much every time they gathered, they ate some bread and drank some wine that reminded them of Jesus' death. We're going to look at that meal in more detail in a couple of weeks. But the point that Paul makes here is that to share in the Lord's Supper is to claim Jesus' death as your sacrifice. It's not that the bread and the juice become Jesus' body and blood in any real sense. Rather, when Christians eat this symbolic meal, we recognise that we need Jesus' death, that we needed Him to die as a sacrifice for us, and we claim the benefits of that sacrifice for ourselves. To, to clarify this point, Paul draws on the Old Testament sacrifices. Verse 18, look at the people of Israel. Don't those who eat the sacrifices participate in what is offered on the altar? If you've been tracking along with us in our daily Bible reading notes, you you would have read Leviticus 7 at some point throughout this week. We won't turn there now, but if you haven't read that, jot it down and have a look as you reflect on uh, what we were hearing from God tonight. Leviticus 7 gives a list of rules about one particular kind of sacrifice and it outlines this principle of participation. Basically, what it says is that when you sacrifice an animal in Israel, you get to eat a part of that animal that was sacrificed. By eating it, in the legal manner that's prescribed, you acknowledge that that sacrifice is effective for you, that it's actually worked. You acknowledge that the benefits of that sacrifice, whether that be cleansing or forgiveness or fellowship, uh, those benefits are then credited by God to your account when you eat of the sacrifice. So, what's the meaning of eating a sacrifice? Well, eating the meat that was offered is a statement of, I need this sacrifice and its benefits are applicable to me. So, with that in mind, when it comes to idols, look at verse 19. What am I saying then, that food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? Well, no, Paul had already slammed those two ideas back in chapter 8, verse 4. He said, an idol is nothing in the world. He's not contradicting himself here. Rather, in verse 20 of chapter 10, no, but I do say that what they sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I don't want you to participate with demons. That's a bit strange, isn't it? If you're like me, when you first read that, you're going, Paul... Where did you get this from? Where are the demons coming from here? Um, It turns out, because I was a bit surprised and I didn't know where this was coming from, it turns out there are two Old Testament passages that have this idea of sacrificing to false gods as sacrificing to demons. You can write them down and chase them up later. They're Deuteronomy 32, verse 17. Deuteronomy 32, verse 17. And Psalm 106, verse 37. Verse 37. Psalm 106 verse 37, in both of those verses, they're talking about Israel falling into the worship of other gods, falling into idolatry, and it calls these gods of the other nations demons. So, with that background, it's kind of hard to know if Paul here in 1 Corinthians is wanting to draw to our minds some individual spiritual beings that sit behind each individual idol. I don't think that's his point here. Certainly, it is the case that there is a larger spiritual realm than we often give credit for. We often think that there's just God and humanity and animals. No, there is this spiritual realm of powers and principalities. Paul talks about them in Ephesians and some of his other letters. But here in Corinthians, I think his focus is less on the particular identity of these demons, perhaps not even on their evil nature, like we might associate with demons rather, His focus is on the fact that by sacrificing to them, it's a statement that you need something from them. Remember, that's what a sacrifice is, it's saying, I need something that God is not able to give me. So, verse 21, you can't drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You can't share in the Lord's table and the table of demons. Or are we provoking the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He? In pagan worship, sacrifices were often made to get fertility or to get prosperity in your land or to get a favourable wind so that you would have a safe journey across the sea. Pagans would sacrifice to the gods thinking that these different gods would give them those things. So to be involved in any sacrifice other than the remembrance of Jesus' death is to say that God can't give you something, that God can't give you what you need that makes God jealous, that makes God angry, and we are no match to God in His jealous anger. Now, God is not an unfair or an unjust jealous anger. God's not the possessive boyfriend that wants his girl to spend 24 hours a day with him and not talk to any other boys. We're not equal with God like a boyfriend and a girlfriend are. There's a huge degree of difference between us and God. We are completely dependent upon God. That's not some contrived dependence or forced codependence, no, it's just the reality that we are creatures. We've been made by God and moment by moment we are dependent on Him giving us our next breath. So, when we fail to give God the glory and the thanks that He deserves and instead turn to some idol and say that we need it, God is rightly jealous. For some amongst us tonight, depending on your background, uh, this passage speaks into the reality of tangible physical idols, images of false gods which your family worships. You need to not be involved in that. And whether that's here in New Zealand or if you travel back to your home country, don't be going into temples and involving yourself in sacrifices to false gods. You don't need to. God will give you everything that you need and, and to get involved in that sacrifice will be to say to those around you and to say to God, I don't actually think that you're giving me everything. But for the rest of us who don't have those tangible, physical idols, doesn't mean that we're free from idolatry. There is only one God and He deserves all the glory and anything that we put in His place. Anything that we say we need alongside Him or instead of Him becomes for us an idol. So let me give you some diagnostic questions that may help you to identify tonight what it is that you are idolizing, what you've been putting in the place of God and thus provoking Him to jealousy over. Here are the questions. As friends observe your life, Does anything look more important to you than Jesus? What do you use to comfort yourself when things get tough? When you meet someone, what do you want them to know most about you? What do you spend more money on than the spread of Jesus' fame? What are you giving your time to rather than gathering with God's people? What do you get more passionate about than the greatness of Jesus? What are you looking forward to more than the return of Jesus? For me, as I ask those questions of myself, uh, two things come up with some degree of regularity that I need to deal with, uh, sport and coffee. <laughs> I have a tendency to give sport and coffee priority over God. Uh, I can be more emotional when watching a sporting game than when telling others about Jesus. I can spend lots of money on sport, costs to get tickets to a game and to buy food at the game. I've been tempted to buy a Sky Sport. Uh, subscription, you know, that's a decent outlay of money. I haven't done that yet, but the temptation is there. I can be more excited about an upcoming match than I can about Jesus' return. I can make sport look more glorious in my life than Jesus, and I need to repent of that. I wonder what it is for you. Is it your career, your relationship? your car, your education, your food, your beauty, your fashion, your computer games. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything for God's glory. Therefore, flee, flee idolatry. Stop giving something other than God the glory that only God deserves. What then about the use of our freedoms? It's been the issue that's tracking since chapter 8. How do we use our freedoms? Well, Paul clarifies his answer in verse 23 to 30. He reiterates the principle that is already stated. We need to seek the good of others. Notice that in verse 23. Everything is permissible, but not everything is helpful. Everything is permissible, but not everything builds up. No one should seek his own good, but the good of the other person. Now, the Corinthians, it seems, had heard Paul's teaching about the freedom that we have in Christ, good and true teaching, but they turned it into this slogan, everything is permissible. They were kind of throwing this around to excuse their behaviours when others were saying that it was a problem for them. No, everything's permissible, we're fine. But as we seek to bring God the glory that He deserves, we don't want to just be doing things that might be neutral but permissible for us we want to be finding the positive things to do that will benefit other christians see the language of building up in verse 23 paul will say much more about how to build others up in chapters 12 to 14 where he turns to look at the church of god as the body of christ and how each member does its part with the gifts that the spirit gives to build the whole body up essentially this is language about spiritual growth or maturity Helping other individual Christians or the church as a whole to become more and more like Jesus. That's what it is to build others up. So if I eat food sacrificed to idols and that actually causes another Christian to go back to idolatry, that's not building them up, that's tearing them down. That's the opposite. Instead, we're meant to do things that benefit other Christians. Paul goes on to give us three scenarios to help us not over apply this passage. You see, we could read this and go, okay, I've got to go around church and I've got to work together a list of every single thing that offends every single individual here. That'll get us in a straitjacket pretty soon because I reckon all of us, we'll find that everything offends someone. We won't be able to do anything before long. So Paul doesn't want us to do that. Now, he gives us these three scenarios essentially to say, it doesn't seem to be an issue, don't make it one. Don't raise questions for conscience' sake. It's the line that he repeats a couple of times through verse 25 to verse 30 it's a, a legal term about making an inquiry so he says if you go to the butcher you know just buy your meat Don't feel like you have to ask the butcher oh, where's this meat from i oh, got it from someone else um did you happen to see where they come from oh they came out from an idol's temple oh better go on no just don't ask questions just enjoy it if you get invited out to dinner don't make an effort to check where the meat's from either enjoy the steak that's put in front of you at that point you're not involved in idolatry it's almost as if he's saying look ignorance is bliss at this point but in the third scenario he gives the one counter example if if you're out for that meal and someone there draws your attention to the origin of the meat and says look this is actually an idol sacrifice well then it has become an issue at that point you need to prioritize that person over your freedom even if that means putting that juicy bit of steak down off your fork, back on the plate, you give up your freedom for the sake of the other person. But other than that, if you're eating a meal and giving thanks to God for providing you with the food, then you're in the clear. Don't go searching out issues. If it doesn't seem to be a problem, don't make it one. And actually, with this act of thanksgiving, you are glorifying God. You're glorifying God in your eating because you're acknowledging that the food is not something that you've produced yourself. The food is not something that you deserve or earn, it's a gift from God. I don't know what your practice is about thanking God for food. Perhaps you never do it, perhaps it's become a legalistic tendency for you where you just trot out the same words every meal and there's no real heart involved in it. Neither of those is good options. It is actually a helpful practice to pause before a meal and in a heartfelt way give thanks to God for providing this food without Him, you would have nothing on the table. Uh, And it could be a good opportunity to reflect back and see what else you can thank God for from your day so far. That's a way to glorify God, to remind yourself that God is the source of all that is good and give thanks to Him. Now, as we're seeking the good of others, what is the ultimate good for them? Have a look at verse 32 to 33. Give no offense to the Jews or the Greeks or the church of God, just as I also try to please all people in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, so that. Pause this again, you get a third reading tip tonight. So that is a purpose phrase. When you see so that, you want to keep an eye out for it and go, what what's the purpose of what's been told to me here? Helpful for picking out the emphasis that an author's making. So why seek the profit of many? What's the goal? so that they may be saved that's Paul's driving motive that's one of the main means by which he brings glory to God let's unpack it a little when we use the language of being saved it implies that we're in trouble doesn't it you don't get saved unless you need saving from something I said right back at the start tonight that we are created to display the glory of God our lives are meant to show that God is good and faithful as we trust and obey Him. But we've all failed to do that, haven't we? Romans 3, verse 23 states what we know to be true that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all provoked God to jealousy by honoring something else more than Him. That's sin. And God's not going to tolerate it forever. God's punishment for sin is death and destruction forever in hell. We need saving. And Jesus' death is the sacrifice that saves us. In His earthly life, Jesus always honoured and glorified His Father. He did everything for His Father's glory, just as we were meant to do, but failed. So, Jesus did not deserve death, yet He died the death we deserve. This is why Jesus' death is the centre of the Christian message. It's not Jesus' moral teaching, not His example, but His death. Paul started this whole letter of 1 Corinthians focusing on this. In 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2, he says, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you, except Jesus Christ and Him crucified, killed on a cross. A few verses earlier, in chapter 1, verse 18, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is God's power to us who are being saved. Jesus' death is the punishment that we deserve, the sacrifice that we really need. So if you're here tonight and you know that God has not really been God in your life, it might be your first time at church or you might have been sitting in church for a while and never really understood sin and your need to be saved, If that's you, today, repent. Stop honouring as God something that is not the true God whom we know through Jesus. Uh, Turn from your idolatry, turn from dishonouring God to serve Jesus and to share in the benefits of His sacrificial death. Uh, Jesus' death is one for us, forgiveness, the cleansing of sin and the hope of an eternal life with God forever. If that's something that you'd like to receive tonight, those benefits of Jesus' death, you can. You just need to ask God. If you want to talk more about that, I'll wait around the corner outside tonight, I'd love to talk with you. For us who are here as Christians tonight though, we are called in this passage to imitate Paul as he imitates Christ. You see, Paul is not, as some people like to think, a, a radical Christian that... Only a select few have to emulate. We see Paul in the way that he gave up so much for the sake of the gospel and we think, oh, I'm so glad that I don't have to do that. That's just for those few radicals that are like him. But no, in 11 verse 1 of 1 Corinthians, we're called to imitate Paul as he imitates Christ. We're called to live with the priorities that Paul and Jesus shared. We're called like them to do everything for the glory of God. Will that be easy? No. (laughs) Will it hurt? Yeah, probably. Paul suffered tremendously for it. Jesus was crucified in obedience to His Father. Doing everything for the glory of God most likely will cause suffering for us, but it's the purpose of our lives. It's what we're made to do, And so alongside that suffering will be a deep-seated joy as we live into what God has made us to be. The purpose of our lives is to show that God is more valuable to us than anything else in the world. To show that Jesus really does deserve to be famous. See, every Christian is an evangelist. It's just a matter of whether or not you're doing a good job at it. As soon as you take on the name of Christian for yourself, your life becomes an advertisement for Jesus. People look at you, and your behaviours, your values, your words, and they make judgment calls now about Jesus because His name has been attached to you as a Christian. So if you're not talking about Jesus much, well, people will assume, oh, this Jesus guy can't be that important. Doesn't seem important to you. If your behaviour is not matching up with what Jesus is teaching, they'll think, oh, this Jesus guy doesn't look like a particularly important person, he must not be trustworthy. So there's a good challenge for us each, isn't it? Is your life, is my life, making Jesus famous or a reproach? I want to draw us to a close with a quote from a guy called John Stott. Uh, John Stott was a an English Christian who wrote a bunch of great books that have been helpful to many Christians across the world. And uh, he writes about this Christian attitude in his commentary on Romans 1 verse 5, he says, we should be jealous for the honour of Jesus' name, troubled when it remains unknown, hurt when it's ignored, indignant when it's blasphemed, and all the time anxious and determined that it shall be given the honour and glory which are due to it. Does that describe your life and your feelings? Uh, If, like me, you need to grow in that, need to align your life more closely to that goal and purpose of glorifying God in everything, how are we going to go about that? Well, it's not by trying harder. It's not by waking up at tomorrow and going, okay, I've got to do a better job. I need to try harder to glorify God. No, we naturally seek the glory of the things that we love. I love coffee, I'll magnify coffee, I'll tell you how good coffee is, I'll point you to where you can get the best coffee, I'll try to draw you into my coffee-loving ways. I look around and I see people that I have convinced to start drinking black coffee, it's great. The things that we love, we will share. And so it is with Jesus. If we're not glorifying Him with our lives, it's because we're not yet as captivated by Jesus as we should be. We don't yet see how worthy of fame and glory Jesus is. So the solution is to keep seeking out the praiseworthiness of the God that we meet in the flesh, in the person of Jesus. Read the Scriptures and search them, not that you grow in your kind of head knowledge about a text, but so that you might know God. Read the Scriptures and ask of each passage, God, what is praiseworthy about you in this passage? What does this give me to praise you for? Friends, He is our Creator Our sustainer, our redeemer. He is the faithful one, the compassionate one, the just avenger of all evil, the father to the fatherless. He is the one who opens the womb or closes it, who cares for widows and refugees, whose voice thunders through the heavens. He is the one who brought Israel up out of slavery in Egypt with a strong arm. He is the one who came into the world to save sinners by suffering a shameful death at the hands of his creatures. And he's the one who stands at the head of an army of thousands upon thousands of mighty angelic beings who together will one day come to judge all people. This is our King. His name is Jesus. Do you know him? Then you'll want others to know him too. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for God's glory. Let's pray. Lord God, who gives endurance and encouragement, give us as a church one mind and one voice to glorify you, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.